in our Wednesday night Bible study, we have been going through the Lord's Prayer um, in the book of Matthew. And several weeks ago, I asked this question, if you had one superpower, what would it be and how would you use it to help other people. And we came up with all kinds of what seemed like really good answers. There were uh, folks that wanted to be able to fly. There were folks that wanted to be able to shoot ice out of their hands. There were some that wanted to do time travel. Um, There were some more spiritual people that wanted to do things like uh, discern how best to counsel people and help people. Uh, But honestly, none of us, including myself as your pastor, none of us listed prayer as the superpower that we wanted. All right. And so I've thought about that since watching this clip. And and I've come to, to the conclusion There's one of two reasons that none of us sitting in that class um, listed prayer as the superpower that we want. And I'm hoping it's number one. Number one, the first reason I came up with was that it's something we already do. It's a superpower that we already have, so we don't need to ask for that one. And I'm hoping that's the case, but I'm thinking conclusion number two is far more likely. That like Dr. Lazy Bones said, we don't really see prayer as a power, especially we don't see prayer as a superpower. For many of us, whether we're gathered here in person or or for us that are watching online, for many of us, if we're truly honest, what we see prayer as is an obligation. That we are obligated to do this thing. Whether it's at nighttime before we go to bed or right before you sit down for, or when you sit down right before you start eating, you're obligated to pray in those times. Or, or even worse, when somebody tells you that, that so and so is in the hospital or they're going through a certain thing, you feel obligated to, to pray for that person. And so this becomes something that you have to do uh, rather than something you won't do. And we do it because this is what we're supposed to do. This is what we as Christians are taught, that you're supposed to be praying. You're supposed to be doing these things. And we teach our kids this is your, your objective, this is your obligation. But there's some of us that see prayer more as a privilege than an obligation. All right? and, and for folks that see it as a privilege, it's not just something we're supposed to do. It's something that we actually delight in doing, something that brings us joy to do. We don't see it as an obligation. We don't see it as a burden. We see it as a, a privilege, as an opportunity to do this. But I wonder how many of us truly see prayer as a superpower. This power that, that goes beyond human ability and this power that goes beyond human comprehension. This morning we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at a very powerful, uh, potentially life-altering prayer that Paul gives. And, and my prayer is that, that we don't just read this, that we let it sink in, that we apply it to our lives. And so let me, before we jump into the text, I want to give you a little uh, bit of why we were looking at this text and, and where we're going to be headed as a church for the next several weeks. And uh, through different channels, God has really been impressing on me this, the fact that, I, that the greatest need we have as individuals, the greatest need we have as a church, as a nation, as Christians in general, the greatest need we have is prayer. And God has been pressing on me to, to, to talk about this and to teach this and work through this over and over and over. In the face of this ongoing pandemic and this upcoming election and all this social unrest that's going on around us, the greatest need we have is to get on our face and on our knees before God our Father. As one author put it, prayer is the most formative weapon against evil and spiritual darkness that a Christian can possess. Unfortunately, it is also the most undervalued, underestimated, and therefore the most neglected weapon in our arsenal. And I believe one of the reasons that this powerful weapon that we possess is so often neglected is because very few of us have ever learned how to pray effectively. We, maybe we prayed out of obligation, maybe we prayed uh, prayers, but we've never felt the power of it. 
D.A. Carson, in a book, Praying with Paul, he writes this idea that, that we pray like we have been taught to pray. And the way we were taught to pray was by observing people who are around us. And, and so when you were young in the faith, when you were young as a child, you grew up and people around you were praying. And so for some of you, uh, maybe you like myself, you grew up in kind of an older, tr- very traditional church. Some of you may grew up in a very liturgical church, all right? And so you learned to pray by listening to the pastor or other people pray, all right? And so D.A. Carson goes on in his book, he says, that's how I learned to pray was I, I watched the deacons and the pastors and, and people around me. I watched them pray and I listened to the language they used and I copied exactly what they did because if they were praying, then that's how I need to pray. He says, but I found myself praying to God in Old English, kind of like I was William Shakespeare or the King James Version of the Bible. And he said, I began to realize I don't talk to anybody else like that. So why not feel the need to formally go to God and use this very formal language? And then he goes to the other stream. He says, some of us didn't grow up in that very formal tradition, that, that very old tradition. He says, some of us grew up um, in a church that was very casual. And so our conversations with God are very casual. They're not formal. In fact, you would carry on a conversation with God just as you would with a friend or a spouse. That, that it makes no difference. You would talk to God the same way that you would talk to your very best friend. And D.A. Carson says, the reason we do that is because that's what we were taught that's how we, we formed our opinion of what prayer should be because that's how the people around us should, were praying. And so he, he says that the manner in which we pray, the language that we use, and even what we pray for is shaped by those that were around us when we were learning to pray. And so if we're going to learn to pray from other people, then, then we need to probably find somebody who is a prayer warrior. If we're going to learn to pray, we need to find somebody who's learned to effectively use this tool of powerful prayer. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be walking through or going through some of Paul's apostles or epistles um, because in several of his epistles, several of these letters that he wrote to the churches, he often includes a prayer, right? And sometimes he includes more than one. And, and he's very specific what he's praying for for this group and what he's praying for for that group. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to kind of jump around in the New Testament, all in the books that Paul wrote, and we're going to look at some of the prayers, not all of them, but some of the prayers that he wrote and some of the prayers that he was praying for these churches. And so that's why we're in Ephesians chapter 3 today. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church. He actually includes two prayers in this passage uh, or in this book. The first one is in chapter 1. The one we're going to look at today is in chapter 3. And so we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. But my prayer is simply that today and through this whole series that we begin to understand and we begin to be a student of what Paul is praying for. And my prayer is that we don't just see this as this is what Paul is praying for somebody else, but this is what Paul is praying for Michael Rakes. This is what Paul is praying if he was here for Cornerstone Baptist Church. And let's be honest, this is what Michael Rakes needs to be praying for you. This is what you need to be praying for each other and for yourselves. You see, let's dive into our text in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. He says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that He may grant you according to the riches of His glory, and be strengthened with power in the inner man through His Spirit, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the width, the height, and depth of God's love, 
and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him, who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, to you be the glory, both now in this moment and forever and ever in our lives. God, to you be the glory for the great love that you have poured out on us, for the power that you uh, make available to us to go out and to, to raise your name, to glorify your name. God, to you be the glory. For allowing us to experience the love of Christ. The love of you that is far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. God, to you be the glory of every word that we have sang. And every heart that is in this room. God, to you be the glory of every word that comes out of my mouth. And lands in our hearts this morning. God, to you be the glory for every heart that is open to you right now. That's going to allow you to come and to do exactly what we sang about. And that song was a prayer. God, prepare us to be a sanctuary. Pure and holy. Tried and true. God, to you be the glory. For coming to dwell within us. To strengthen us and to power us both now and forever and ever. Amen. In the late 19th century, there was a lady that lived in England that had several medical conditions that made her really unable to leave her house. And, and so one day she was reading a newspaper article about a, a gentleman who was doing these revival services in America. And his name was D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody. And some of you may know him. Some of you may be familiar with kind of his preaching and uh, some of the, the things that he has written. And she read about these revivals that were just taking place everywhere that he went. Um, that there were revivals were happening. So she began began to pray that God would send D.L. Moody to her church. Even though she wasn't able to go to church, that she really prayed that God would allow D.L. Moody or bring D.L. Moody to her church and, and to preach at her church in England. Some years later, after she read this article, D.L. Moody decided to take a vacation in no other place except London, England. And when he went there, he had absolutely zero intention of preaching. He wasn't going to preach while he was gone on vacation. He had no desire to preach. He was simply going to rest and to relax and, and kind of to, to center himself back on Christ before he came back and started doing revivals in America. That was his sole purpose for going. But as he walked the streets of London, he, he bumped into this pastor, and the pastor convinced him to come and preach just one service. That's all, just one sermon. If you'll just come preach one Sunday morning for me, we would be ever grateful for you. And so D.L. Moody had been off for a few weeks of preaching. He'd agreed he would come and he would do one service. That was it. That's all he was going to agree to do. He was going to do this one service. And so uh, the, the lady was super excited uh, when she found out that her sister came home, that, that uh, D.L. Moody had preached that morning service. And in fact, he, wasn't, he agreed after that service that something else needed to be done. So he wasn't just going to preach that morning. He was going to preach that evening service as well. And so this invalid lady, this lady who couldn't leave her house, got on her knees for the rest of the afternoon and the evening. She prayed that God would do something amazing and God would do something special that evening. 
In his journal, D.L. Moody made this statement about the people of this church in England. He said they were the deadest group of people that I have ever preached to that morning. He said, of all congregations, out of all places I'd ever been, that church that morning was the deadest that I had ever seen. He said, but that night, something was different. That night, as he stood to deliver the message, he could tell that something was different. That night, several people not only confessed their sins, but several people uh, became uh, Christians. They accepted Christ as their Savior. And so he had no idea that this lady had been spending all afternoon and all evening praying that God would do something amazing. D.L. Moody got on a train to go to Ireland early the next morning. And then before he ever got to the... Or when he got to the train station in Ireland, he got a telegram from the pastor of this little church in England. And it was simply this request. Can you please come back? Revival is breaking out. People are getting saved all over the place. I can't do this all by myself. Please come back and preach for us again. And D.L. Moody got right back on the train, went right back to England and preached a revival service for the next 10 days. Thousands of people came to know Christ through that revival service. And it all started because of one woman who couldn't go to church, but one woman who was so convinced that she wanted to see revival, she was so convinced and, and, and so wanted to experience revival that she knew this would happen if only somebody would believe in the power of prayer and had faith enough to put it into action. This lady who was wasting away on the outside had no title, no authority, no position at all on the outside, and yet her prayer is what moved God to move D.L. Moody to this place who allowed him to preach for for 10 straight days and bring thousands of people to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. She understands the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of someone, even though it's not demonstrated on the outside. You see, that's the first request that Paul makes in praying for the, on behalf of the Ephesians. He's praying that they and that us receive power on the inside. Now understand that Paul is saying this at what could be a very discouraging time in Paul's ministry. He's faced some tough difficulties. In fact, as he writes this, he's sitting in prison. He's sitting in a jail cell. And he says, listen, Ephesians, folks in Ephesus, I don't want you to become discouraged because of what's happening to me. I don't want you to, to, to be discouraged and draw back because of what's happening to me. And so to prevent them from being discouraged, he pulls out the best weapon in his arsenal. He goes to his father in prayer. And we look at verse 16 to see the context text of his prayer. Verse 14 and 15 are kind of the introduction of verse 16 really starts the context of it. And he says, I pray that you, or that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be the strength, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit. Now this is an amazing verse and it is so deep and rich and every word of it adds beauty to what Paul is talking about and when he's talking to this heavenly father. And we're going to come back to that phrase of being rich in glory. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. But I want to look at what he's asking for. His first prayer request is that the people be strengthened. All right? He wants them to be fortified and to be made strong with power. But there's something amazing about this verb because it is in the passive voice. All right? In Greek, there's two voices, or there's three voices. There's passive, active, and middle. And active means the person, the subject, is doing the action. 
Passive means it's something that is done to the subject, right? It's not something they're doing. So when Paul says, I'm praying that you are strengthened, he's using a passive voice, which means he's not praying that the Ephesians start going to more Bible studies. He's not praying that they start hitting the, the, physical or the spiritual gym. He's not praying that they build up their spiritual muscles on their own. You see what he's saying? I'm praying that God will strengthen you. That God will do something within you, do something around you that will give you strength. Why? Because Paul knows that like so many of us, if we had to rely on our own strength or even our abilities to gain physical and spiritual strength, we would fall flat on our face every single time. And so Paul's prayer is not that the Ephesians will start building their own strength. Paul's prayer is, I'm praying that God's going to build strength within you. That God's going to do something in your life. And he's praying that they are fortified, that they are strengthened, that they are made strong through God. And he's praying that they are made strong and they're strengthened with power. And this is another very interesting Greek word. It's dynamis, which sounds very much like our word dynamite. And there's a reason for that because that's where the English word comes from. Now, as soon as you hear the word dynamite, there should be simple images that go through your head. This little bitty stick that's about this big and about this long that possesses enough power to blow the face off of a mountain, to split rocks in half. This little bitty stick that they use to, to mine out mountains. This little bitty stick that they will use to cut roads through mountains. This is amazing raw power. This is what the word dynamite is. This is, this is what it looks like. But this isn't just the word power. You see, Paul uses this word that is inherent power. Power that resides in something by the virtue, by its nature. You see, what makes dynamite so powerful has nothing to do with what's on the outside of it. Do you see that? What makes dynamite powerful is not the red casing they put on the outside. What makes dynamite powerful is not the fuse that comes inside of it. Even if you light that fuse, that's not what's the power of dynamite. The power of the dynamite is the nitroglycerin that is inside of it. And nitroglycerin, by its nature, by its chemical makeup, the nitroglycerin itself is explosive and it's powerful. So understand that Paul is asking for God to do something in the very nature of these people, in the very inner being of these people, so that their substance is filled with power. You see, he wants it on the inside so bad for them. He wants their insides to demonstrate the power that God has, this spirit that is going to come inside of them. That's what he's asking God for. I want you to strengthen them. I want you to fortify them. I want you to give them power so that their very nature is transformed. And he goes on to say that he wants this power to be in the inner man, not on the outside, for all the world to marvel at and see but on the inside, in the inner man. This is where Paul is praying for this kind of strength and this kind of power. And he, he uses very similar language in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 4, verse 16. And he says, Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. I want to tell you that we live in a culture, in a world that is obsessed with outside power. And with outside strength. Think about it for a moment. People will spend hundreds of dollars throughout a year to, to pay for a gym membership that some of them honestly will never use. But those that do will spend hours in a gym, working out, exercising. And you say, well, they're doing it so they can be healthy. 
But understand that Paul's not talking inside of your body. He's talking your spirit. And, and so people will spend hours and hours a day. Some of them will spend hours a day. Some of them will spend hours a week. But they'll spend all this time trying to improve their body so that their body is stronger or their body is healthier. And they'll build up their body, but they'll neglect their soul that's on the inside. And the inside, they are totally wasting away. People will spend countless amounts of money on clothes or makeup trying to improve their outer appearance, and yet they're content with leaving their inner soul wasting away to nothing. People will do anything and everything if they think it will give them a little bit of power over somebody else on the outside. If they think that they can have just a, a little bit of, of, of energy or up on someone, a little bit of control on the outside, and what they'll eventually find out is that you can give up everything to gain power, but if the power is only on the outside, then it's going to come crumbling down because the power really should be on the inside. You see, I, when I was in college, I got to work in a nursing home, and there was an older gentleman there who is exactly what Paul is talking about. And when he talks in 2 Corinthians and when he talks about Ephesians, there was this older gentleman there who needed help. He came into this nursing home and he needed help uh, bathing himself. He needed help getting his clothes changed. And I watched him basically wither away into the point of death. But there's a reason this man above everybody else stands out to me in this nursing home. Because every single night, it didn't matter who his nurse's aide was or who his nurse was, Every single night, when you got him ready for bed and you got his pajamas on and you got him into bed, he said one thing, I'm going to pray for you. And he didn't mean it like some of us mean it, of I'm going to pray for you like tomorrow or some other time. No, when he said it, you were stopped because he was going to pray for you right then and right there. And here was a man who was wasting away on the outside that his physical body was literally withering away. And yet on the inside, he possessed this power and strength that it didn't matter what his outside appearance was or what his body was going through on the inside. On the inside, he was stronger than he had ever been in his life. That's the point that Paul is trying to get us to. So that it doesn't matter what the outside is going through. It doesn't matter how weak we get on the outside or how frail we get on the outside. That inside we are strengthened and we are firm and we are powerful and we are fortified. D.A. Carson's writes that Christians are in urgent need to follow Paul's example and praying for displays of God's power in the inner being. In short, Paul's primary concern is to pray for a display of God's mighty power. Get this, in the dominion of our being that controls our character and prepares us for heaven. Do you hear that? Paul's concern is not what you look like on the outside. It's not how much you can bench press. Paul's concern is, I want God to come into your life and make a difference in your life because you are preparing for an eternity that is far beyond what you picture here on earth. And so how do we get this kind of power in our inner man? Paul gives us this idea. How do we get this strength? Paul provides the answer for us in the first part of verse 17. And so his prayer is, I want them to be strengthened. I want them to have power in the inner man. In verse 17, he says, this is how you get it. He says, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. By the way, just a side note. Did you see how Paul has fully addressed every member of the Trinity in this very short passage of prayer? He kneels to the Father. He's asking through the Spirit. And now he's inviting the Son, the Messiah, into the hearts. 
He's addressed the full trinity here. It's beautiful how Paul does that. And he says, listen, this is what's going to happen. You see, there's two words that Paul could have used for dwelling in the hearts of people. Okay, There's two Greek words that mean dwell. One of them is a very temporary situation. Okay, It's the, the, the dwelling you would use if you went to somebody else's house or if you went to, someone's, uh, you went to a hotel or something like that. It's not your permanent residence. Okay, And so while you may be comfortable with the people that are around you, it's not home. Okay, And I don't know if you've ever had to spend the night in someone else's home. I don't know if you've ever had to spend the night at a hotel or somewhere else. And you just have this feeling that like, this is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not home to me. And then all of a sudden you leave that place and you come back to home and, and there's this relief like, that vacation was great, but man, it's good to be home. This is where my domain is. This is where I'm comfortable. And, and, and I'll, let's be honest, no bed sleeps like your bed, right? It, it doesn't matter how comfortable those beds are, or how much you pay for that hotel room. No bed sleeps like your bed. You see, there's a temporary dwelling, but the word Paul uses is a permanent dwelling. This is home. You're going to be there for a little while, but this is home. This is the word that Paul uses. This is how it's translated. This is a permanent dwelling. This is your home. This is your domain. This is where you feel comfortable. This is where you relax because everything around you is yours. You don't have to be on edge that you're going to knock something over and break something and you're going to have to pay for it because it's already yours. To one author I read this week, gives this great illustration that Paul is, uh, what Paul is praying. He said, I want you to imagine a very young couple that is so excited, they're young, they're in love, and so they go out and they buy their house, their very first house together. And like most young couples, they, they don't have a lot of money, but they're living on love and that's all they need. And so they, they go and they're so excited about this house, only to find out that the house is, the roof is leaking. Every faucet in this house is leaking. That everything in here is, is in trouble. That the floors are stained and they're dirty. There are holes in the wall and there's wallpaper that is, is so outdated, man. It is an eyesore what is left of it because part of it's already been peeled off and taken apart. And this, this young couple, like so many, get, they get in this situation. They don't, they don't necessarily see all that. They're just so excited to be inside that house. And so they don't have the money to come in like a young couple would. And they don't have the money to start fixing everything right away. So they simply make this commitment. We're going to start in one place. And we're going to fix the most prominent need first. And then after we fix that, we're going to move to a room. And we're going to fix that room. And after we get that room set up and perfect like we wanted, then we're going to move to another room. And so years and years go by. And then this house is being transformed piece by piece by piece. And so years go by. And so after these years go by, it begins to take on the person of the people who are living in it and working on it. So that when you walk into the house, it becomes impossible not to see these people and their work. It becomes impossible not to see their fingerprints on everything that's in the house. The identity of the house has taken on the identity of the people who live there and who have made all these repairs to it. You see, that's what Paul is praying for here in this passage. That's what he's praying the Messiah would do when he dwells in our hearts. He's asking the Messiah to move in, not temporary, but to make our hearts His permanent home. Now, when most of you bought your home, whether it's been 2 years or 10 years or 15 years ago, my guess is that your home doesn't look the exact same as it did the day you moved in. All right. As much as I would love to say that I hadn't had to change anything in my house since the day we moved in, we've lived there not quite 4 years, and I've already had to repaint most of it. 
And you guys know how much I love painting, so you know how much I love my wife now, all right? Because we wanted it to look like we wanted it. We wanted to, to, to have our character involved in it. And so we painted and we put up pictures and we did all these things to make this house have our identity to it. And so this is exactly what Jesus does when he comes into the, uh, the house that is our home. He comes in and he begins to rearrange and remodel this living space from the inside out. He begins to fix the broken places in our life. He begins to clear out the stains and the eyesores that, that are there in our lives. And he begins to take apart and, and show us through his work. And Paul is praying that, that Christ will come in, that he will remodel, redesign, restructure, reorganize, rehabilitate every part of this life until it completely takes on the identity of himself you see Christ is not at home if there's a place in your home and in your life that he's not allowed you may give him this part of your life and this part of your life and this part of your life and you may say God you can come in and you can rearrange all of that furniture you can repaint that you can fix all that you want to but this part is mine if you've ever been there then you know God is not at home if this part is cut off to him and so what Paul is really praying is that he wants, this, he wants these people and for us to allow Christ, the power of Christ, to come into our lives so that no part of our lives, no part of our heart, no part of our mind or soul is off limits to Him. That we are totally giving ourselves to Him and we simply say, God, here we are, every aspect of our life, in our goals and our agenda, have at it. And God, if there are parts in my life that need to be taken out, take them out. If there are stains in my life that need to be removed, get rid of them. If there's something that's not pleasing to you because it's an eyesore, then Christ, take it out. This is what Paul is praying for. And if you're wanting the power that Paul is talking about, then this is where it starts with allowing yourself to be so rechanged, reconformed, so that you take on the identity of the one who's living within you, that you are mistake, unmistakably his. If you're lacking power in your life, it's probably because you've cut off the Messiah to live in some part of your life. Paul starts and he says, Listen, I want God to strengthen you with power through the Spirit. Because the Son is coming to dwell in your hearts and He's going to redesign your heart and your life. And if you're wasting away on the outside, that's fine. But know that you are strengthened and you are renewed day by day on the inside. That's what Paul is praying for these Ephesians. That's what you should be praying for yourselves, for your children, for your spouse. That's what we as a church should be praying for each other. That we are strengthened on the inside. And so even if the outside wastes away and everything that we own goes to squat, then only on the inside, we are solid and we are steadfast because the power of Christ that lives within us. That's the first request that Paul makes, is there's power on the inside. The second request that Paul makes in this prayer is that the Ephesians, and for us, that we will have the power to comprehend God's love. Halfway through verse 17, he starts a new sentence, which is an odd place to break it. Um, it's, it's weird when a verse starts, or a sentence starts in the middle of a verse. And, and, and know when Paul wrote this, he didn't put a 17 there. That wasn't added until years and, and centuries later. Uh, but a new verse starts in the middle of verse 17, and it starts the exact same way as the verse 16 does. So that's how we know he's starting a new thought. Okay, he starts it the same way. So in the first part of verse, or excuse me, in the second part of verse seventeen, he says, "I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love." All right. So understand this: you are already rooted and established in love. 
It lets us know that when Paul is praying this prayer, this is not a prayer of salvation. He's not praying that these people come to know Jesus because they don't know Jesus before. In fact, he's saying you're already rooted and established in His love. You already know His love. And so this is not a salvation prayer for them. They're already saved. And so we're going to skip that part for now. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. But if we read on in verse 18, he says in verse 17, I'm praying that you, verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. When we think of comprehend, we think of knowing. We think of understanding. And we think it's this mental exercise of what Paul is saying when he says the word comprehend. But I want you to understand that, that there is temptation to think that way. But Paul has such a deeper meaning in mind here than just knowing Christ. What he says here is that he wants you to comprehend it. And that word comprehend means that you experience it. That you literally grasp it. You reach out and you take hold of it so it becomes your own possession. So that you hold it in your grasp firmly. That's what Paul is praying for. You see, there's a huge difference between just knowing the love of Christ and grasping the love of Christ. When I was in college, my first two years, I learned a lot of chemistry. Right? I took two semesters of chemistry and sometimes three every year that I was in college. And so my first two years, I learned chemistry. I had a good, fairly decent knowledge of chemistry. All right? And I learned a ton of it. Those first two years. But my second two years, I really grasp it. You say, well, what happened those second two years? My second two years, my junior and senior year, I got to be a teaching assistant or a lab assistant for some of the professors that were in the chemistry department. So understand that I got to go into the secret storerooms, the secret chemical rooms that nobody else was allowed to go into. Right? So we had talked about all these reactions and all these very dangerous chemicals that nobody was allowed to see or nobody was allowed to touch. We had talked about those. I could write out those reactions. I knew in here what those things looked like. I'd even watch videos of what happened when you took sodium and you dropped it in water. I've seen all those videos. But my junior and senior year, I got to go back into the storerooms. And I got to go back in the deep, dark holes where all the chemicals that no one's allowed to touch, I got to go back into those places and I got to experience them. I got to reach out and grasp them. And so I got firsthand experience, fully immersed in this experience of what it looks like. And some of you will understand this. When you take a piece of sodium and you drop it in water and you watch it explode. You see, I knew that would happen. But all of a sudden, when I experienced, when I did it for myself, when I reached out and I grasped it and I experienced for myself, that's when I grasped this chemistry idea. That's when my whole vision and my whole idea of what chemistry was all about, that's when it changed for me, when I experienced myself. And that's what Paul is talking about here in this verse. He says, I'm praying not just for the Ephesians, but for us, for all the saints. Not that you'll just know Christ and the love of Christ with this mental aspect. He's saying, I'm praying that you become fully immersed in this experience of the love of God. I'm praying that you don't just know Him with your mind, that you experience with every fiber of your being, that you reach out and you grasp it and you take hold of it. He's not just saying that I want you to experience the love of God, but I want you to experience the length and the width and the height and the depth of it. I want you to experience every aspect of the love of God. He's praying that this whole experience, that we experience the endlessness of God's love. One commentator puts it this way. He says, to come to an understanding of the dimensions of God's love, we must come to the cross. See, the cross points in four ways. 
Essentially, it is in every direction because God's love is wide enough to include every person. God's love is long enough to last through all of eternity. God's love is deep enough to reach the worst sinners. God's love is high enough to take us to the heights of heaven. See, Paul's prayer isn't just that we know this kind of love. Paul's prayer is that we experience this kind of love. Paul's prayer is that we experience a love that holds nothing back. This whole, this love that stepped out of heaven and endured the worst type of torture ever imagined by human beings. And, and this kind of love that a father would have for a world that doesn't deserve it, for a world that didn't even warn at the time. This kind of love that God would have for all of us sitting in this room right now that would watch his son endure this agony, endure this pain for hours. Paul is saying, I want you to experience that kind of love. I I want you to know this is the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of God's love. I want you to understand it and I want you to experience it because I don't understand why God would do that for me. I know the depths of my sin. I know how ugly I am on the inside and it makes no sense to me why God would give up His Son for a person like me. I look around this world and all I see is evil. And I have no clue why God would do this For people who don't appreciate him, don't love him, and honestly don't even want him. For people who would just rather spit in his face and turn their back and walk away from him as soon as look at him or talk about him. And it makes no sense to me, logically, why God would do that for me or honestly for any of you. I've got one son and two daughters, and I wouldn't give any of them for any of you in this room. And I love you. So I don't know what in the world God was thinking when he would do it for people who hated him. That's what Paul talks about when he talks about this love that surpasses knowledge. This love that surpasses understanding. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why God would do this, but I praise God He did. This is what God wants us to experience. This is what Paul wants us to experience. Not just to know about it, but he wants us to experience it because this is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. This is what Paul is praying, not that we know, but that we experience in a way that it changes every aspect of our life. This is what he's praying, that we reach out and we take hold of with every fiber of our being. Let me go back and connect verse 17 and verse 18 for just a minute. In verse 17, he says, You are rooted and firmly established in love. Do you hear that? You are rooted and firmly established. He's using an illustration of a tree or a foundation here. That this part, the bottom of a tree doesn't move. Why? Because there are roots that hold it in place. It doesn't move at all. It is rooted and it's firm. And Paul says, You're there. You are rooted and you are firm. In this love. But if you've ever watched a tree in the middle of a storm, if you've ever watched a tree in the, when the wind starts to blow, you start to notice something about it. The bottom of the tree doesn't move. It's the top of the tree that you've got to look out for. It's the top of the tree that swings back and forth and gets whipped back and forth by the wind. It's the top of the tree that breaks off. Have you ever noticed that? Either the roots give way or it's the top of the limbs that start to fall off. And do you know why they do that? Because they're so swayed back and forth, yet this part down here of the tree is not moving at all. But this part has nothing to hang on to. This part has roots. It's, it's holding on to everything in the ground. This part up top, it's just going to the wind because it doesn't have anything to hold on to. It's not rooted. It's not holding on to anything. And so understand that what's true for a tree is true for you and me. For some of us, we are rooted and we are firmly established in love. 
means we have put our faith in salvation. This is not a salvation question for us. Our feet are solid in the cross. We know that love. But the problem is there are storms in our life that are causing the rest of us to sway back and forth so violently, so intensely, that for many of us we are almost to this point that we are ready to break. Because this part isn't moving, but everything else in our life is so unstable and so unsure. And I want you to see this picture that Paul is painting in these verses. He says, you are rooted and established. I'm not worried about your foundation, but what I want you to do is I want you to take your hands and I want you to comprehend, I want you to grasp the fullness of God's love for you. You see, the reason the tree sways at the top is because there's nothing to hold on to. The reason your life is so twisted and getting ready to break is because your roots are established, but there's nothing up top for you to hold on to. And Paul says, listen, stop being swayed by the wind. Reach out and grab the love of Christ so that now you are firmly established on the bottom and the top, that every bit of your strength is not going to move anymore. You're not going to be swayed by the wind. You're not going to be pushed over by the breeze that you are holding on to something at the top. And so now you're not twisted. You're not mangled. You're not going to fall apart because you're holding on in so many different places and so many different points in your life. Hold on to the love of God. Grasp the full love of God. This is the fullness that he's talking about. This is what it means to be fully immersed and to experience this, to take hold of it. And see, the power to withstand the storms of life is not just in how deep our roots is, but it's how tightly we hold on to the love of God when those storms come. It's how tightly we comprehend the love of God, the length, the width, the depth, and the height of it. And so those storms that come through our life will not have the same effect next time because we're grasping the love of God in a way that we haven't before. Paul ends this prayer with a word of praise, and his praise is to the source of power. And he gives us this sneak peek of this back in verse 16. When he simply starts his prayer, and did you notice the language he describes God? He says, I'm praying that he may grant you, get this, according to the riches of his glory. That's the first sign of praise. He's already starting praise right there. He's recognizing who God is. God is rich in glory. He's abundant in splendor. He's abundant in excellence. He's abundant in majesty. This is who he is. This is where his blessings come from. That We don't have to worry that, that God's bank account is going to run out. We don't have to worry that God's going to not be able to bless us one day. We don't have to worry that we reached out and we grasped this, this hold of God's love, but it's going to give out because he is abundant in riches. He is abundant in glory. He's abundant in excellence and majesty. It's always there for us. God is endless when it comes to these resources, but he picks up the praise Again, at the very end of his prayer in verse 20, he says, Now, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, going on to verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God gives us power in Christ, through Christ, to live out His glory. He allows us to experience the love that He has for us, for His glory. But don't miss this in verse 20. He does what He is able to do, and He is able to do far above and beyond what we ask, or what we think, or what we imagine. Understand that some of us, this is what we ask God for. And God says, no, no, no. I can do above that. And not just above that, I can do exceedingly abundantly, if you've got the King James Version. I can do far more than more than more. I can do beyond, beyond, beyond what you're asking for, okay? So, so we're okay. We're like, hey, God, this is what I want. And God's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I can take it to this level. 
But not that. I can take it to this level. And not that. I can take it to this level over here. And so all of a sudden, we're facing this God who is so much more than we've ever given Him credit for. We're facing this God who is beyond anything that we prayed for or anything that we've imagined and anything that we've ever thought of that He could be. Then we, we, this is the God that we're speaking to. This is the God that we pray to. This is the God that we talk to. Every time we bow, it is a God that goes beyond every point of our imagination. It is a God that is beyond, beyond, beyond the limits of every imagination that we've ever had about Him. Think about the best picture you've ever had of heaven and multiply that times 10 billion and you're still not where God is at. Think of the glory of God and the best picture that you can have in your mind, the riches of God and the best picture of your mind. Now multiply that times a billion and you're still not where God is at. That's who we're talking about. That's who we're praying to. Several years ago, in fact, a long time ago, there was a couple who had the privilege on their honeymoon to go to Paris. And one of the first things the lady wanted to see when she went to Paris was the Eiffel Tower. And it's a landmark there, and that's what a lot of people go to. And so she went to this Eiffel Tower, and she said the height and the beauty of it was just breathtaking. And she stood at the bottom of this 1,063 feet tall Eiffel Tower, just standing there in awe of this Eiffel Tower and how beautiful it was and how tall it was and how amazing it was. And she was just taken back by it. So for the couple's 25th anniversary, she had been hinting all along that she really wanted to go to Paris, that she really wanted to go back and, and see that Eiffel Tower again. She wanted that same experience again. But times were different, and things were a little tougher now. They were paying for kids to get through college and some of them to get licensed. And, and so the husband thought he was going to do something nice. He was going to come up with this, this option. And so he went and he told his wife, he says, Listen, for our 25th anniversary, I've got two tickets to Paris. And the first thing we're going to do when we get there is that we're going to go look at the Eiffel Tower. And so she was excited. She was elated. She was so excited that she was going to relive that experience that she didn't really pay attention to all the details. You see, because when they got on the plane to go to Paris, it wasn't Paris, France. It was Paris, Texas. And so she got on that plane and she walked over there and she was, she was all right with this because she was going to get to see this Eiffel Tower. And so you can imagine the disappointment when this lady who had stood at the base of a 1,063 feet tall Eiffel Tower, when she got to this Eiffel Tower and looked up at it and it was only 66 feet tall and complete with a red cowboy hat on top of it, as only Texas would do. Her husband asked her about this Eiffel Tower and she just simply told him, I don't know how anybody could accept this cheap counterfeit after experiencing breathtaking beauty and the height of the real thing. This imitation is far more disappointing than I ever thought it could be. See, part of the reason that some of us don't experience the power that Paul is talking about, that he's talking about in this prayer and that he's praying that we get Part of the reason that we don't see prayer as a superpower is because if we're honest, we've settled for a cheap imitation, a cheap counterfeit of the version of God rather than the real thing. 
rather than praising God for who He is and what He can do far above and beyond anything that we ask or think. We've settled for this God and we're going to be disappointed by this God that we put limits on. We've settled for this God who's a cheap imitation. And so let me be clear what Paul is saying here. The problem is in our prayers that it's not that we're asking too much of Him. That's not the problem at all. The problem is that we're expecting too little of Him. Do you hear the difference in that? Let's be honest, we pray so much about so many different things. But what if God answered your prayer far beyond what you imagined? Would you even expect it? Most of us wouldn't. Most of us just pray, and if God does it, He does it. If not, oh well, He's got a different plan. That wasn't His will. We come up with some excuse. But what if we actually prayed, expecting this God who can do far beyond what we even think or imagine? What if we expected Him to do what we ask Him to do? You see, the problem, like I said, is not that we ask too little. It's that we expect too little. Or excuse me, not that we ask too much. It's that we expect too little of Him. That we've made ourselves this idea that God is just so small. We've limited Him so much that we're only going to be disappointed by this imitation of this God, this real God who's out there in this this real God who goes above and beyond anything that we think or even imagine. And, and what if we actually pray to the God and say, listen, God, here's what I'm asking for. But in fact, I'm going to ask for something more than that because I know you can do more than this. In fact, I'm not going to ask this person just to get out of the hospital. God, I'm going to ask that you do a complete miracle in this life and they never have this problem again. What if we just stopped asking for cheap counterfeits and we started asking God for the really big things in our life? What if we actually started expecting God to do big things in our life? Parents, what if instead of just praying for small things for your kids, you expected God just to blow them out of the water with who He is? What if for ourselves, we stopped just praying that God would, would be here on Sunday morning, and then instead we expected Him to not just be here, but blow our minds here so much that we carried it out into the world? What if we expected more of this God who could do above and beyond anything that we think or we can imagine you see, when we stop accepting this cheap counterfeit of God, when we stop accepting this cheap little picture of God, then our world is suddenly opened up to this huge God who can do above and beyond. We begin to praise God for who He really is instead of who we've tried to make Him to be. If you're missing power in your prayers, if you're missing power in your life, it may not be because you're asking for it. It may be because the God that you think you're talking to is far too small compared to the real God that is out there and is listening to every prayer that you ever made. Let's go ahead and pray together.